Good morning, everyone. It's great to see everybody. Thank you for coming and celebrating Christmas with us here at Renew as we uh, continue our series, The Wonder of Christmas. Now, it's easy sometimes as you get older, believe it or not, kids, as you get older, that some Christmas wonder um, goes away a little bit. And the reality is there's a reason for it. And we often refer to it as, uh, in the past couple weeks anyway, as snow globe dynamics. I think all of us would love our Christmas to be, ready? Ready for the word? Perfect. I want it to be perfect. I think there's a lot of really good moms who want to have a perfect Christmas. And prayerfully, it won't be a throwing up Christmas, right? (laughs) You want it to be a perfect Christmas. You want that perfect postcard image. You want a snow globe Christmas. You want it to just be exactly the way you always imagined it. Oh, isn't it just perfect? I mean, and look at our snow globe from last week. Nothing happened in there. Nothing, nothing. The snow is still the same. The church, the snow hasn't even melted off the church. The cardinals have stayed exactly in the same branch. Oh, don't we love when things just stay the way we want them to be? Don't we tend to just battle anything that could prevent it from going exactly the way we want it to be. But, but we're, gonna, we're gonna build on our snow globe illustration as the place of perfection by mentioning the fact that that's not everybody's snow globe. I mean, for somebody it might be, oh, beautiful church building. But like maybe for me, that building could represent a little bit of stress. For you, oh, that's a place I go to relax. If you maybe were, it could be something else. So maybe your snow globe, something else. Maybe, maybe your snow globe would be something totally different. What would you put in your snow globe? Well, fortunately, I, I have someone who has provided me some more snow globes, okay? And um, now let's just look at a few of them here and, and let's get it. Here, here's, here's a snow globe of, I, I know it's difficult to see, but we've got a couple deer out front. They feel safe. Look at them. They're just so happy. Some of you aren't around, you know? And and there's this little hill that goes up to a little cabin. Can you imagine being in that cabin? Some of you though, when you heard there's a little hill, you're out. I don't do no hills. We're not going to be doing, that's not my snow globe. But but look at that wonderful snow globe. Just just room for one up there in that little little cabin. Let me make sure my my little's on there. Nice and sturdy. Uh, Let's see what else we got here. Um, Maybe your snow globe is this. Oh, look at this. This beautiful little cottage of nice family in there. And the windows glowing yellow, little Thomas Kincaid action there, right? I mean, what a beautiful scene that is. I mean, mean, that's maybe what your scene is. A nice family gathered together at Christmas time. I mean, that is what you've been longing for. You want to get the picture in the same spot you took the same picture in 1998, you know? We want the same picture put on the same clothes. Teenagers love when you do that. Or maybe it's this one. You say, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It was that mansion. Oh yeah, this house is huge in there. Look at all these bedrooms and, and all these wonderful things. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the picture. Like, man, I got everything I want for Christmas. Different globes. For deep, people have different images of what is the perfect Christmas. But see, we don't know what's going on in these little worlds because the reality is there isn't perfect Christmases. That's just for snow globe world. I mean, I look at this little house here and we might have somebody in there who's terribly alone. In fact, people might say to them things at Christmas time like, hey, we know you're gonna be alone again, so uh, why don't you come over here? And it's just a reminder of, yeah, I am alone. Maybe over here, this little cottage, oh, it looks so nice in this, this family, but maybe this family's going through some loss or maybe this family's going through some, some tragic news. Or maybe there's a family member that there's something going on with that they're struggling it's not gonna be a perfect Christmas. Oh, maybe over here in this, this big old house, I mean, it's wonderful, but you know, sometimes where there's a lot of uh, earthly success, there can also be a lot of pride, and who knows, maybe there's a lot of division in that house, and there's a lot of tension 
And there's a lot of people not necessarily looking forward to Christmas dinner because of what could happen or what has been said or what has been done even last year. Nah, the reality is all of us know what it's like to have a snow globe vision of what we wanted our career to be, what we wanted our life to be, what we wanted our marriage to be, what we wanted our family to be, and it's just not happening. And, and when that happens, there's grief, there's loss. And we mentioned that we sometimes go through a cycle of varying emotions when we're inside a world that has been shook up. Some of those emotions can be denial. The grief cycle talks about a stage where people go through denial. I will make this happen. I will force my will upon to this snow globe and we will get back what we had. Maybe it's anger. I can't believe that was taken from me. How dare that be taken from me? I'm gonna blame the people who take it from me or I'm gonna blame the one I think took it from me. Then there's suppression. I tried to change it. I tried anger. I tried denial, but the reality is here. And now I just want to be in a blanket up in the top of that room and call it a life. Or maybe it's bargaining. You know what? If we do this, maybe this would happen. And if I do this and then this could happen, maybe it's acceptance that, you know what? Life stinks. Carry on with the sermon, Chris. And, and, and you see, when we're going through the storms of loss, whether it be a vision, whether it be people, whether it be relationships, whether it be dreams. When we're going through a loss, it's hard to find comfort. And some people will try to offer comfort. They'll say things like this. Well, you know what? We're all in the same boat. I've heard that said over the past few years here with what all society has gone through. And they say, yeah, we're all in the same boat. And I heard somebody remark, and it caught my attention because I agreed with it. The person said this. He said, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not in the same boat. Some have yachts and some have canoes. We are not in the same boat. Some people are going through this just fine. In fact, it's going great for them. And there's others, they're barely limping along. Don't tell me we're all in the same boat. And to that, I agree with. But then that person reflected on something and I, 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 I took it. They said this, we're not in the same boat, but there is something we're all in. We're not in the same boat, but we're in the same storm. We are in the same storm. And although we might not be in the same boat, we're going through the same things. And into that world where there are storms, there is suffering, there is difficulty, there is loss, there is a death of snow globes, our, our Savior desires to comfort us in the moment. And there might be something in us that say, well, what does he know? He's got a perfect snow globe. He's God. He's just going to sit back and watch mine fall apart. Whether it's been due to our own consequences or even the trial we're going through. How can God truly comfort me in the death of my snow globe? It's a devotional called Streams in the Desert. The author was writing it because they had a loved one who was dying. And they were trying to collect words of comfort for them to share with them as they were going through this tremendous trial. January 11th, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Anybody know where that's from? Isaiah 40, the book of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people. So if it's Isaiah, he was speaking to the children of Israel. Comfort them, even though they're under Babylonian exile, even though there's not much hope for their nation. I want you to comfort them. God is a God of comfort. But what really sparks is the devotional behind it. It says this, store up comfort. This was the prophet Isaiah's mission. The world is full of hurting and comfortless hearts. Full of them. But before you will be competent for this lofty ministry, you must be trained. If you want the ministry of comforting people, you must be trained. And your training is extremely costly. For to make it complete, you too must endure the 
same afflictions that are wringing countless hearts of tears and blood? Consequently, your own life becomes the hospital ward where you are taught the divine art of comfort. You will be wounded so that in the binding up of your wounds by the great physician, you may learn how to render first aid to the wounded everywhere. Do you wonder why you are having to experience some great sorrow? Over the next 10 years, you will find many others afflicted in the same way you are now. You will tell them how you suffered and were comforted. As the story unfolds, God will apply the anesthetic he once used on you to them. Then in the eager look follow. Then in the eager look followed by the gleam of hope that chases the shadow of despair from the soul, you will know why you were afflicted and you will bless God for the discipline that filled your life with such a treasure of experience and helpfulness. God comforts us not to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. One of many nuggets in this book that's titled Streams in the Desert. Water when you're hurting. It's been given its title from passages in Isaiah. One where God said, even in a wrecked life, even in the storms that have hit everything, even in the storm that had hit his people because of their sin, Israel was a rebellious people. Even in that, God sends comfort. The, the latter half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, have been called at times the book of consolation. It's a book of comfort. And within that comfort, there's a chapter that talks about how God is doing a new thing. And oh, make no mistake, the new thing is King Cyrus will deliver them from Babylonian captivity. But it seems that there is an individual that is spoken of, that is coming, who will do a new thing. He will be a servant and his reach will be far beyond Israel but even to the ends of the earth. God's doing a new thing. You may not like it. You might not like the globe you currently have. But when you embrace the new, Isaiah tells us to not dwell on the former things. Oh, don't forget them, but this is reality now. Dwell on what remains. We often tend to think when our snow globe's broken that I've lost this, I've lost this, and there has been loss, make no mistake, and there's time for grief. But also, dwell on what is still there. Grasp what God is doing. It'll be easy when the storms hit to go, God's not doing this and God's doing this, but watch where he is doing things. And then trust, despite the uncertainty, that he can make a way even in the wilderness, even when it's snowing. And he can provide rest within the difficulty and thus the title, he can make streams in the desert. I'm doing a new thing and he doesn't want us to miss it. And so yes, today you may be here and you go, the wonder of Christmas is gone for me, but maybe you just need to hear the Holy Spirit whisper into your heart, child of God, I'm gonna do a new thing. Embrace it. Dwell on what you have. Watch where I'm working. Trust me, despite the uncertainty, I'm gonna make streams in the desert. Heavenly Father, would you use this Christmas to restore the wonder that we may have lost? Oh, oh, not to a world we wish we would be in, but to the incredible truth that God left perfect. He left his snow globe to come to our mess to not only comfort us, but to provide a way to go to his. It's the wonder of Christmas, the incarnation we celebrate, Jesus. Oh, and yes, as the Old Testament prophets prophesied, Jesus, Messiah. He left his throne to come to us. It's the wonder of Christmas, and we look at those truths today, excited for what you're gonna teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now, if you joined us last week, we've been looking at the four songs of Isaiah. And it's been exciting to hear that many of you are like, well, I've never really processed these four songs. Once again, they're in the latter half of Isaiah. And it's in that book of consolation, if you will, chapters 40 through so 44. 55, and there's four songs specifically, and each song talks about a servant. Well, well, on the natural look at it, it's like, oh, well, yeah, well, Israel is called God's servant. But these songs are so specific, and they talk of an individual, not just some sort of corporate thing as well, that there must be either double meaning or it's speaking of a servant, not only that will come in the now, but will come in the future. So there's a sense where there's responsibility of Israel. And then there's the fulfillment with this individual who is called the servant. Last week, we opened the scroll of Isaiah, if you will, and we looked at the chosen servant from Isaiah chapter 42, verses one through four. And we noted two characteristics that flowed through the song, that this servant of Isaiah will be gentle and lowly. He will be gentle and humble. We talked about wanting to have a wonder-filled Christmas those who experience a gentle and humble approach are the ones who will emulate this servant that is spoken of in the first song. And we said, is that servant Jesus? I mean, I mean, are we drawing a little bit too much from this? I mean, are we, are we really seeing Jesus in these servant songs? Well, well, there's one person who refers to himself in the New Testament, all four gospels, he refers to his heart. In two ways, he says, come to me for I am gentle and lowly. That's our savior. He's gentle and lowly. Is this the servant of Isaiah? But, but it's when we jump to Matthew chapter 12 where we really began to see it. In that section, Jesus is called the chosen servant and he heals a withered hand and the Pharisees, obstinate about him doing this on the Sabbath, came for him and he went away. For this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. And it quotes the very servant song of Isaiah 42. So the first song, we see this incredible reality of a messianic song written hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth being fulfilled by Jesus Messiah during his incarnation during the time he had made flesh and dwelt on earth and so we learned a lot from this song so we're excited today I pray to open up the second song and we'll call the servant in the second song the incredible servant when I read this I thought wow this servant is incredible. And, and, and so let me, let me read it to you. Let's, let's dive in here. It says this, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too light. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. <laughs> I read that and go, whoa. You might read that, maybe read that and go, all right, I'm glad you're excited about it, Chris. I read that and go, are you kidding me? This servant is incredible. This servant is not just human. This is fully God. This is, this is, he's like a super living on earth. 
There's a supernatural aspect to this servant. And, and he's, he's, he's awesome and he's incredible. How, how many of you enjoy watching superhero movies? I mean, I, I grew up enjoying them too. I know there's all this new Marvel thing and all that stuff, all right? But, but I grew up loving Superman. Oh, oh, I love Superman. And, and, and you remember those scenes where he would be getting pushed around a little bit as Clark Kent fixing his glasses, right? And then he would go. And I'd be like, come on, don't let him mess with you like that. You're Superman, kind of show off, do your thing, flex on. But he just kind of let him push it around. And it made the moments where he just exploded in strength all the more wonderful, right? And don't you love those moments in those superhero movies where, where they're not showing what they're capable of doing and they're getting beat up a little bit and you're like, oh, it's coming, oh, it's coming. I love Superman. And this younger generation, you guys can't appreciate Superman because you don't even know what a telephone booth is. <laughs> you have never even made a collect call. You haven't lived. He would go into the telephone booth. He'd shut the booth and he'd change and he'd come out and he didn't fly around with hand open, did he? Listen, church, he closed his fist. And if you understand what it feels like to put on your underoos. Somebody understands the preacher today. And put your fist out and go around the house. You understand what Superman was. And there's a snow globe with me being Superman, but that never happened. I would have loved it. But I love those moments where he kind of showed off his strength instead of those moments when he was kind of like, you know, just letting everybody shove him around. See, what are you getting at, Chris? Watch the incredible servant of Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. What? The servant is speaking in first person. We haven't seen this before. It's always been someone speaking about the servant. Now the servant is talking and he says, listen to me. And he doesn't say just Israel. He says, you people from afar. So this, this stretches far beyond just Israel. He says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. This is a human. This is not just a supernatural. This is a human. And so I'm learning things about this. But then it says this, and this is, this is what got me excited. He made my mouth. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. It, it gives me images of revelation where Jesus comes back on a white horse. Why is it white? Because he's the victor. And, it, uh, and, and John says there's like a sword coming out of his mouth. Whenever a sword comes out, it's like truth penetrating and can pierce hearts, this wonderful truth. It, this is what the servant says. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. Wait, he hid me? He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Oh, that is incredible imagery. Okay, so in his quiver, and I understand quivers now are on the side of, on the, side of the compound bow, but, but in this time, the quiver would have been on the back. And in his quiver, the Lord, the servant says, the Lord made me a sharp arrow. It's like there's one in there. It's really sharp. This one is a, a, a broad head. It, it, can, it can hit and slice and, and penetrate through. But the image is here. It's the Lord has this servant. The servant is like this, and, and the Lord's like this. He's just sharpening it. I got one arrow, and when I choose to shoot it, it's not gonna miss. That's how the servant describes himself. What incredible imagery. I am capable of destroying anything my father decides to shoot at. But I'm in the quiver right now, as I come to earth, I didn't come for that. Well, when I come back, I'm coming in red hot. You're gonna see me as the suffering servant. But when I return, check out the book of Revelation. He has fire in his eyes and he hits his target and there's no chance of him ever not succeeding. He's polished, he's measured, He's for a time. What an incredible view of the servant. And the servant is speaking in first person. I want to read more. And he says this, he says this. 
And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Okay, are we speaking of the servant now is representing Israel? Is Israel part of the now and the future? I think there's elements of both for we already know, we've already read it. One of the aspects of the servant is to bring Israel to himself. So we have this individual as well as corporate. So, so let's keep reading. And it says this, it says this. But he, I said, I've labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing. And in vanity, yet, yet, yet surely my right hands with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Oh, wait, 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 wait. The servant has feelings? This super on earth has feelings. Like he has emotions. He's not just this robot, I've come to do my father's will. He has feelings. And some of his feelings sometimes demonstrate frustration or even hesitation or even concern over the timing. It's almost as if there's some, oh, not my will, but your will be done going on with the servant. Wow. I've spent my strength for nothing. The servant experiences exhaustion. But surely my right hand was the Lord. He finds consolation that God's with him. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. My goal, my job is to bring that back. It's God's doing and, and I'm going to be bringing back Israel for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord loves me and he honors me and my God has become my strength, the servant says. He says to me, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing. I'm your strength. So, so the servant is totally dependent on his master. And it's too light. I got bigger plans than just bringing back Israel. And then he says this, I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Can you think of anyone who came to this earth and said, I am the light of the world that would reach to the nations? Wow, this, this servant of Isaiah in the second song is an incredible servant. And I'm learning stuff about this incredible servant. The source of his work is God. The purpose of his work is to be a polished arrow that's not used fully yet. It has a mission but it has a larger mission. There's an approach to his work. He says, I've labored in vain, but he knows that there is a goal. Success to his work. I will make you a light for the nations. There's no way you're gonna not succeed. And so I put two words that I see in the second song. If I saw gentle and lowly in the first song, I see meek and measured in the second. Do you know anybody meek and measured? I, know you bet, I bet you know people who are brash and reckless. Do you know anybody meek and measured? Meek, it carries the idea of being under control, restraint, measured, patient, submissive. Anybody struggle with that? I know I do. This world is not teaching meek and measured. This world teaches impose your will. Compare the meek and measured servant of the second song to another type, the king of Babylon in Isaiah. We looked at this last week. I call it Babylon temptation. Our world is full of Babylon temptation. Babylon always represents evil in scripture. We see it not only in this time period where it overcome Israel and was used as a disciplinary tool by God over the nation of Israel, but we also see it in prophetic literature as well as in eschatology of the evil, the antichrist coming from these Babylon aspects. And so the king of Babylon represents something. And often people look at this, scholars conclude that this king Babylon is probably a type of Lucifer himself for he is called the day star. And in that, Isaiah talks about what the king of Babylon said in his heart. How different is this from meek and measured? The Babylon king says, you said in your heart, I will be known or I will ascend above the stars. You ever a temptation to go, I wanna be known. I wanna be known. The king of Babylon said, I will ascend above the stars. 
He also said, I will be successful. I will set my throne on high. I will. They're known as the five I wills of the king of Babylon. I will be successful. I will be respected. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I not only will be respected, I will be powerful. I'll rise above the clouds. You said in your heart, I will also be praised. I will be like the most high. The Babylon temptation is to go, I don't like my snow globe. I'm looking at other people's snow globes and I don't like mine. I wanna be known. I wanna be successful. I wanna be respected. I wanna be powerful. I wanna be praised and I'm not being it. So here we go. And this world is making a lot of money, a lot of money on tempting people to climb the ladder of pride. But look what happens to the king of Babylon. But you were brought down low. Do you know what's at the top of that ladder? A fall. When we impose our will, I will, I will, I will, I will, you're headed the wrong direction. You're headed the wrong direction. And pride cometh before the fall. But look at the Lord's servant in the New Testament. Look at Philippians chapter two and see a totally different approach when things maybe aren't going perfect. Paul says to the Philippian church, I want you to have this mind in yourselves that was in Jesus Christ. And he speaks of the incarnation and he says this, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in heaven, equal in the Godhead. He did not regard that to be grasped. He chose instead to surrender and leave perfection. Not only did he surrender, scripture continues in Philippians and says this, he emptied himself. This is spoken of in scholarly circles as the kenosis or the emptying or the restraining himself from the voluntary use of his divine privileges. He was fully God and fully man, but while on earth, he sacrificed the privileges that he laid aside in his perfection all by while still being God taking the form, not of another king. He left his throne and didn't go to another throne, but instead he took the form of a servant being found in the likeness of a man, of men. Right there you see what's called often the doctrine of hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man. God in the flesh, which is what incarnation means, taking on flesh, comes as a baby taking human form. He said, I will serve. And then he continues and he says, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Not demanding his way, but by becoming obedient. I mean, when you're powerful, don't you demand your own way? No, no, he submitted. And on top of that, Paul tells the Philippian church, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's almost like Paul had to say, even death on a cross. Perfection left perfection to surrender and sacrifice. Are you going through a season where God is asking you to surrender something? You're on the right, you're on the right trajectory. Are you going through a season where you're being asked to sacrifice something that you really wanted? you're actually on the right trajectory. Are, are you in a season of your life where you're being called to serve someone instead of be served? You're on the right trajectory. No, 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 Chris, my world is falling apart. I have to submit to these people. You're on the right trajectory. No, no, Chris, I'm suffering a lot right now. Wait, 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 wait. You're on the right trajectory. That seems to be the trajectory because look what happens. Jesus did all these things and therefore God highly exalted him. He gave him a name above all names. They'll be singing about his name in 2022 and beyond because of what he did. When God's called me to surrender or sacrifice or serve or submit or suffer, 
I tend to think my snow globe's falling apart when the reality is it might be totally coming together. It doesn't make it any easier though, Chris. It feels like that doesn't make it any easier, but how does it feel to know that Jesus chose to endure our mess so we could go to his? I mean, it's incredible. The God of the universe got tired? God does not slumber or sleep, scripture tells us. And Jesus got tired, he'd take a nap in the back of a boat. The God of the universe knew what it was like to get hungry. The God of the universe knew what it was like to get stressed, hurt, blood. The God of the universe knew what sadness was. He understood frustration. How many times do we hear him go, how long guys am I gonna tell you about these things and you not understand? And oh, did he get frustrated with the Pharisees even sometimes to the point of anger. He was even tested in Matthew 4. You say, well, Chris, I, I understand he's going through that, but, but he was God, but that's the beauty of the emptying. He chose self-renunciation. He voluntarily refrained from using his divinity to make his way on earth any easier. And when you grasp that, you begin to realize when he was hungry, he could have made food. What a temptation. When he was stressed, he could have just fixed the situation and he chose not to. When he was sad, he could just go resurrect anybody he wanted to instead of watch John the Baptist beheaded and weep in the Garden of Gethsemane for his death because he loved him. Could have done that, but he didn't. He restrained himself. You begin to understand the incredible aspect of the servant. And I wrote down in my notes, in case you think living in America, that meekness is weakness. Because meekness often is called things like, that guy's soft. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness at all. In fact, meekness is power under control. It's incredible power under control control. There's a lesson here. When I have the power to do something and I demonstrate restraint, I am following the path of my savior. I'm having the mind of Christ. Is there anywhere in your life where you're wanting to seize control back, but you need to restrain yourself? You're following the path of Christ. I got thinking, I got thinking. Kids, I got thinking, how could I illustrate this to the parents? But who am I kidding? The parents will understand. Anybody know this guy that's going to appear on the screen behind me? Does anybody know this guy? Let me just know this guy? Dash, right? Now, normally I am an eye roll when movies are brought up in church, but just stay with me, okay? Stay with me a second. This is an incredible illustration, no pun intended. I mean, this little guy is so fast and he's so furious. I mean, I mean, right? He's like a middle schooler, right? In the movie, and he can fly. I mean, he's like, and, and one time when he gets trapped, his big sister goes, remember what mom told you to do? And he goes, what? Run! And he just Boom! And he runs. And he can absolutely run at, at the speed of light. It's just fun watching him. And his nickname, or his name is Dash. What, what a great name. What, what a great name, Dash. But, but there's, a, there's a scene in the later movies, okay? There's a scene in the later movies where his parents, especially dad, is trying to mold him into being around the humans, even though he's a super. And while he's with the humans, you don't want to just show you're a super all the time. And so they ask him to be meek and measured. What do I mean? You have the power to do something, but just listen to what dad says. Only stay with what dad says. And no more is that kind of simulated out than when they put Dash in track and field with humans. And they ask him to run, but restrain himself. Can I show you this video quick? Let's watch this. And I want you to see this, this dynamic play out of what he could do, but he listens to his father's will. Go ahead, show it. Yeah! 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 
that's my boy. He gets out in front super easy. Whoa, 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 back, 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 back. Get second, get second. Yeah. I love the dad's reaction next to the parents. Like who does that, right? Who does that? You saw an illustration of meek and measured. Do we ever see that with the Lord's servant in scripture? Oh, there's one scene specifically. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you get to see the divine and the human working together. And you don't see it necessarily with just one witness account of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, but you see it more when you use all four accounts. And so the Lord's servant, I wanna show him as meek and measured in the garden. And what we're gonna do here, what we're gonna do here is we're gonna call this the harmony of the gospels. Now, now this, is, this is like seminary level. You go and you harmonize the gospels. It's something you don't hear about until you go to like a Bible college or something, but just stay with me for a second. There's four eyewitness accounts. They're the four gospels, okay? And each one of them record what they saw. And there are certain stories about Jesus that are in all four. And when you harmonize the accounts together, you get more knowledge than if you just read one account of who was there, what happened. And so this is my approach. This is, this is what I put together. So you can judge it as maybe not the best harmony, but I, I did my best to harmonize four gospels together and look at the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to watch power under control. It begins in Luke 22. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Have you ever listened to that and gone, why is he not enter into temptation? How tempting is it about to be for the God man to not let what happens happen? He got away because he anticipated temptation. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus understands temptation? I mean, but he couldn't sin, right? He's an impeccable God, and I totally, fully believe that. So is it really an attack of temptation if he's not gonna sin? Well, let me ask you this. If a tugboat chose to attack a battleship, is it a real attack? It's a real attack, but it has no chance. But Jesus understands temptation. Let's continue in the gospels. It says this in the next verse, he took Peter and Mark, it tells us, and James and John. So we find out from Mark that, the, the, that he had a smaller group. He went with them a little bit further and he began to get, be deeply distressed, the God man, and, and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus understands what it's like to be deeply distressed and troubled? Have you ever been there? Jesus would say to you, I totally get it. Let's continue. And he withdrew, Luke tells us, from about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. That's the, the plan to go to the cross. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus understands what it's like to wish God had a different plan than what I'm currently going through. Totally gets it. Let's keep reading, let's keep reading. And, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. People a lot smarter than me have studied this and said, do you know how much anxiety and stress needs to be on a body for there to be bud secreting from the eyes? Have you ever been in agony emotionally? Not, not, not I'm a little sad, laying on the floor after a phone call in agony? Jesus totally gets it. He understands. And, and, and then let's keep reading here. Um, still in Luke. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples. He came back to them and he found them sleeping for sorrow. I mean, these guys clearly see something's going on. They're sleeping out of sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Is it the temptation to give up? Is it to quit? Is it to run? Is it to be abandoned? They were sleeping on Jesus in his moment of need. Have you ever had people you were counting on completely let you down? Jesus totally understands 
Let's continue. Scripture says this in Matthew. So leaving them, again, he went away and he prayed for a third time saying, okay, so he prayed, Lord, let it not be your will, but your will be done. He prayed that multiple times. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Wait, 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 wait. Have you ever felt like somebody is out to get you? Like literally they're out to get you? Jesus, it seems, totally understands what you're going through. There's someone out to get him and in his divinity, he knows that it's now. He knows it's now. And he says, arise. Let's continue. Okay, John, we're bringing in John now. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Man, they're using one of Jesus' getaways as the way to trap him. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, which would be probably a Roman cohort, which is around 400 some soldiers. How dangerous do they think Jesus is? He's by himself, basically. They got 400 Roman soldiers, no less, and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? When you pray and go, Jesus, you don't understand what I'm going through, he would say to you, I totally get it. Wow. Let's keep going. And John, is it John? What do we got next? Matthew, Matthew. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. No, you did not just address him as teacher. And he kissed him and gave him a holy kiss. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. How humiliated. Have you ever been humiliated in public? Jesus gets it. Really? You're going to give him a kiss and call him rabbi all excited? Jesus is like, friend, do what you came to do. What? How? What's the next one? What's the next one? John. John. Then Jesus. What? Knowing? We get to see his divinity. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, to them, I am he. Jesus understands what it's like to be hated and searched out having done nothing wrong. Totally understands. But what is amazing and what you often don't know when, unless you're doing these harmony of the gospels is these little nuggets of information that you might've glossed over in your life, hearing about Jesus praying in the garden. Watch what happens next. John tells us, Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And so they call, Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They're coming to arrest him. They have 400 some soldiers. They have a basically this room full of people with weapons. And, they, and Jesus says, who do you guys, like me saying it all to you guys, who do you guys seek? Chris, I'm him. And they all fall down. Have you ever seen this? They all fall down. What's amazing is this. It says Judas was with him. Now, who do we know from previous passages at the Lord's Supper? What did it say? It said Satan entered Judas, didn't it? You have a picture of Jesus standing over Satan on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, falling down. Do you wonder if he thundered, I am he? Do you wonder if it was like the Shekinah, I am, for they fell to the ground? Hundreds of people, who do you seek? Jesus, I am him, boom. They're so taken back by what he said Jesus has to remind them they're there to arrest him. Watch this. Watch this. So he asked him again. Do you love it? I just feel like Jesus is always getting shoved around in the Bible. Hello, hello, hello. You're watching meekness. Whom do you seek? They're getting back up. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these guys go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus understands what it feels like to protect someone you love even when you're being the one attacked. Wow. 
Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus. And they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I imagine it was the one who tried to hold that. But, but, but I stopped a minute. I put in my little notes. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus knows what it feels like to be arrested. I bet there's somebody who's listening or needs to hear that. He knows what it feels like to be arrested. Wow. Who do you think it was slicing his ear? It was Peter, of course. <laughs> Jesus turns to Peter in the harmony of the gospels, and, we, and we, we learn this. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? Don't miss this, church. He is giving you some insight. Do you not think at any moment, do you not think at any moment, any moment, if God says fire, any moment, I could not call on legions of angels. Legions are sections, so thousands of angels and end this right now. You think I don't know what I'm capable of? but I'm hidden in the quiver right now. That's for someday. And when it comes, oh, it's gonna be swift. But right now, meek and measured. And in his divinity, he reaches over and heals the ear. Mark concludes this. Mark often thought to possibly be a teenager at the time. Uh, many people think he writes this. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, many people think are referring, Mark is referring to himself, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus when they seized him. He, he even left naked, leaving his garment behind. That means Jesus understands what it's like to watch everyone abandon you. I put in my notes, meek and measured. I want to grow to be meek and measured like my hero. Because that's what power under control looks like. I, I made some notes about these accounts, these harmonies of the gospel. Um, um, a meek and measured servant retreats to pray when facing temptation. They anticipate temptation might come in an area of their life and they might need to have restraint. And so they retreat to pray. You may need to retreat to pray before your Christmas gatherings this year because you know you could be tempted to say something that will destroy the rest of the Christmases to your son-in-law or whatever person you pick. Refuses self-will, even when questioning the Father's will. Every child of God goes through a time where they say, God, I really don't like your will here. It hurts, God. Isn't it good to know? Jesus goes, I get it. But the Father's will is always best. Receives divine comfort when suffering in agony from fervent prayer. You mean when I'm suffering from emotional agony, one of the things I ought to do is fervent prayer. Yeah, that's when the divine comfort came. He recognizes others' needs, even when facing tremendous stress. Oftentimes when I'm under tremendous stress, I'm extremely selfish. The servant, meek and measured, when he's going through tremendous stress, he thinks about other people. Hey, you're here for me, let them go. Remain self-controlled when being wrongfully accused. How often do we want to fight right back and say, hey, that's not true. He remains self-controlled. He restrains violent reactions when experiencing conflict. He doesn't say, let's fight. He, he restrains it. Hold, whoa, 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 whoa. He responds with meekness when being rejected and even abandoned. Remember this, church. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. No matter the storm, that was hitting Jesus, he began to embrace the new. Judas is coming. Judas is coming. I don't necessarily like it. I've been crying about it, but he's coming. Let's deal with it. It hurts. It stinks, but I have to embrace it. Not only does he embrace, he dwells on what remains. I must do my father's will and stay focused on that and notice what God is doing, not what is not being done. He trusts despite the uncertainty, even in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane, even in the wilderness, God makes a path for him and provides him streams, even in the desert. The harmony of those gospels, that account, shows me that God is working all things together for the good, even those times where it seems like the child of God is losing. 
The reality is they're following the greatest winner of all time. But I wrote, what encourages me the most is he understands. Scripture says we don't have a high priest that doesn't sympathize with us. He understands our weaknesses, who is attempted in every way, yet without sin. And so when we go to him, he can be that comforter. Church, we want you to have a wonder-filled Christmas. And in order to do that, you're not gonna find it in refusing to let go and grasping something that's not there. You're not gonna find freedom in focusing on all the things that are lost. You're gonna find the freedom in focusing on what is there. You're not gonna find the freedom in going, I don't see God working anywhere. And you're gonna miss that you just had soup dropped off at your house by a child of God. If you're focused on a snow globe life, it's not gonna happen, but you can trust him even in the uncertainty and even in the storms blowing because he will make streams in the desert. We learned last week from the gentle and lowly servant that pride cometh before the fall, humility cometh before the rise. We learned that there's an incredible return on investment, but we'll call it ROS. There's an incredible return on servanthood. Whenever you choose one of the S's, you're headed in the right direction, not the wrong direction. But we learn today, meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. We were meeting in a tent. I was going through a difficult time getting myself focused on what God wanted for me because there was opinions everywhere. It was two years ago, and God led me to call the series True North. I said, Lord, I'm gonna listen to you because I got far too many people telling me what to do. And in that season of desert, I wrote down eight priorities for the meek because I heard something in scripture. It said, blessed are the meek. You know what the word blessed can be translated? Happy. Happy are the arrogant and prideful. Doesn't, doesn't say that. Happy are the control freaks. That doesn't say that. Ah, nuts. Um, happy are the ones who grasp what they want and do. I will force my will, I will, I will. Nope, doesn't say it. It says happy are the weak. So, so I like happy, that's a good thing. So I wrote my notes back then and I just pulled it up so I could look at it again. They remain patient when frustrated. They remain convicted despite mockery. They remain honest despite temptation. The meek remain quiet despite hurt. They remain gracious despite betrayal. They remain humble despite praise. They remain empathetic despite disagreement. And they remain calm despite rage. There's an incredible return on meekness in scripture because you're living out Jesus Christ. So, so, so Chris, before we leave, you really think the second song is about Jesus? You, you think the incredible servant it's Isaiah talking about Israel, of course, but you think, you think Jesus is there too? In Luke 2, guys, Joseph and Mary are coming with their turtle doves. You're like, oh, wait, that's in scripture? It is, okay. They're coming to the temple, right? And they're bringing Jesus to be presented for that is what the law demanded. And they come walking in and there was this guy named Simeon who was a very devout and righteous man and he was told he would see the Messiah before he died. They walk into the temple and Simeon sees the child and he walks up to Mary. Moms, check this out. He walks up and he kind of like puts his hands out and she gives him, okay? She, she puts dash in his hands, okay? And um, this arrow, this weapon is in his hands and he understands it's a weapon. See, the world sees this little baby and he's like, whoa. <laughs> and, and he holds him out and there's like this Mufasa moment. And he says this, and we'll conclude with this. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding the baby. That you have prepared in the presence of all people. Watch what he says, watch what he says. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. For the glory of Israel and for the light to the Gentiles that will go to afar. Jesus, Messiah, name above all names. And he hands the baby back to Mary. 
and basically tells her, this child's gonna hurt your heart. He's not gonna live a snow globe life. He basically tells her, he's gonna suffer. He's gonna crush your heart, mom. Don't anticipate a snow globe. This child's been born to die. He's been born to be mocked. He's been born to be beaten. And the greatest winner of all time came to earth and allowed them to treat him like a loser. But he won the victory. And he's your savior. And that is the power of the incarnation. Thanks for giving me an extra five minutes. Heavenly Father, as we close today, we are all of your awesomeness. You're an incredible God. And you loved us so much that you sent this sharp arrow to earth to stay in the quiver, to be gentle and lowly and meek and measured. But one day you're gonna fire that bow. And knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to call in the name of Jesus. If there's anyone in here today who does not know the Savior, who understands everything they've been through, who can comfort them in their most difficult moment. I pray even today they'd stop by and talk to one of our pastors about how they can turn from their sin and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Jesus, name above all names, left his snow globe, lived a perfect life, became sin even though he knew no sin so that he might become my righteousness. That Jesus is Christmas, and it's wonderful. It's the wonder of Christmas. Amen.